cultivating place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Sam Holdley is the manager of horticultural research at the Mount Cuba Center in Delaware, a remarkable botanic garden and conservation center, as well as one of the country's leading research and trial gardens for native plant species, old and new cultivars, as well as hybrids. The garden has been open to the public since 2013. With the fall planning and planting season now firmly in sight, Sam joins us today to share more about the data he and the team at Mount Cuba are aggregating for us as home gardeners about how available native plant species and selections really do in our gardens. Welcome to Cultivating Place, Sam. So pleased to be speaking with you. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, Jennifer. It really is an honor to be here. So, you know, I, I just gave your title and the title of the place you work, but will you introduce people to yourself just a little more personally, how you introduce yourself? Like, I'm Sam, I'm a gardener. And um, <laughs> sure. and maybe include in that a distillation of what plants and gardens mean in your life personally right now. Sure. So I yes, I am Sam Hoadley. Um, and I think the best thing that the best way to describe myself is kind of an observant gardener. Uh, um, and that um that applies directly to what I do at Mount Cuba Center. You know, we're evaluating native plants for their beauty and value. Um, but it also um applies to what I do at home. I'm I'm an, an avid gardener in my home landscape, and I'm my personal goal um, you know, in my home garden is to create habitat. Um, provide support for wildlife through planting native plants um, and you know just observing those interactions observing how those plants are working or not working in the landscape um, is just kind of it really um, excites me and is what kind of continues that excitement through my work at Mount Cuba Center. So take us back a little bit before we get into you and your work there and and what Mount Cuba is doing in in our world where were you born and raised and and who were the people and places and plants that grew you into a man for whom this would be uh not only your your career work but a driving force in your personal life also sam yeah of course so i uh, was born in connecticut and grew up in a small town called east granby in north central connecticut um, I was fortunate enough to, I think, I, in a way, I grew up in the woods. Um, there was a large area of woodland around our house. We were constantly outside. And I really attribute um, my fondness of nature and that exposure to the woodlands um, to my mom. Um, we spent a lot of time outside together, and she gave me nearly free reign in our home garden to experiment, to plant, to garden. Um, but I think really um, being in the woodlands, being out in, you know, in the forests of North Central Connecticut is really what instilled that love of nature and um, into me at a very young age. And I knew from a very early age that I wanted to be a gardener. I wanted to be in horticulture and trips to places like Longwood Gardens really inspired me further. Mm, And I eventually uh, went to the University of Vermont and got my degree in horticulture. Um, From there, eventually came back to Longwood as an employee 
and spent about six or seven years there. And um, about four years ago, came to Mount Cuba Center and uh, into the role that I have now, um, which is just like, it's kind of a, a culmination of, you know, my inspiration from an early age, that observant gardening, um, it kind of all clicked and it all makes sense. Um, and it's a really, really fabulous place to be. What a great story. And what a like clear line. Not many people have that direct of a line, Sam. So tell us a little bit more about that, like that moment of moving from um, studying uh, horticulture and then making the connection to Mount Cuba. G give us fill in a little more detail there, Sam. Sure. So um, Mount Cuba, when I first moved to this area to well, I live in Pennsylvania now and I'm very close to Mount Cuba Center. When I first moved to this area, you, know, you heard a lot about Mount Cuba Center. The research reports that um, George Coombs and Mount Cuba Center was putting out at the time were fabulous. And I you know, were, was digging into them as, as soon as they would come out. I would read them from cover to cover. And I used a lot of that information in my own, you know, in my garden designs, whether that was at work or at home or at clients' gardens. Um, and it really just, I really recognized early on that this was a very special place. And it wasn't long after I moved to Pennsylvania that Mount Cuba Center really opened its doors to regular visitation, which I believe happened in 2013. Um, and right away, I started going there and just was blown away by the beauty of this place, was inspired by, you know, the displays, the plants, um, the level of care uh, and detail that's put into maintaining the gardens and the plants here. Um, was just incredible. And I really kind of held that as my own personal standard. If I could achieve that at home or or at work, then I'd be doing something right. Um, so when I saw that this job, this manager of horticultural research job was, was opening um, and that George had accepted a position as the director of horticulture here, I jumped at the opportunity and um, was extremely excited at the prospect of working here. I never in a million years thought I would get it. But I'm so glad I did. And um, and it has been an absolute blast to be in this role and to work here. Yeah. Uh, okay. So take us to the to to Mount Cuba itself. Like give us a little bit of the history. When when was it started and why was it started? And has that mission and purpose evolved over time? Sam, give us give us the background on the center. Sure. So Mount Cuba Center was the estate of the Copeland family, um, and they originally moved to this area from Litchfield, Connecticut, which is actually not terribly far from where I grew up. Um, so Mr. Copeland had a job in Wilmington, but they wanted to find a property that reminded them of their home in Litchfield. Um, and I have to say that um, this property in Mount Cuba Center really does remind me of what I still consider to be home. Um, rolling hills, a lot of exposed rocky woodlands. Mm -hmm. um, it just has this really fantastic sense of place. But if you were to be dropped here, I don't know if I could tell you exactly where I was if I didn't wasn't familiar with this place um, already. It would be difficult for me to say, yes, I'm in Delaware. I would think more someplace in upstate New York or, you know, in New England somewhere. Um, but they moved to this area and essentially this property was at the top of a hill and it was essentially just fallow cornfield. And they built a colonial revival home in the middle of this old fallow cornfield, and they started building gardens right away in the 1930s. Um, the first garden was a formal garden um, designed by Marion Coffin, who's a very famous um, landscape designer and who was very active in this area yeah. um, in the early 1900s. Oh, that's great. I and had no idea Marion Coffin designed it. That's fabulous. Yeah, and she's done some work in several other gardens in this area, most notably probably Winter Tour, mm -hmm. which is very close, to, look close by as the crow flies. 
Um, and after that, they started extending into the naturalistic gardens um, and planting trees, incorporating wildflowers. And at the beginning of Mount Cuba Center, it wasn't all about native plants, but Mr. and Mrs. Copeland quickly realized that you know, what really excited them about gardening and what they felt was really important to conserve was our native wildflowers. So it started to be started to shift more towards a native plant garden, focusing on native flowers, um, native flora. And it wasn't long after that that they both realized that they eventually wanted Mount Cuba Center to be a place that could be open to the public. Mm. And really, their intention was for Mount Cuba Center to be a place where people could come and they could be inspired by the beauty and value of native plants and hopefully also be inspired to be con become conservators themselves. Um, and that really was set in motion um, in earnest after Mrs. Mr. Copeland passed away. Um, Mrs. Copeland worked with um, Dr. Lighty, who was the first director of um, the gardens here um, in, I believe it was the 90s. And they set up the, you know, what was going to be eventually Mount Cuba Center. Um, and in Mrs. Copeland passed away in 2001. So there was a big um, shift from, you know, being in a state garden to becoming a public garden. And we opened our gates for the first time to regular visitation um, in 2013. Um, and now people can come and hopefully, again, you know, be inspired by plants, both by their beauty and value, um, which is still our core mission to this day. Um, you know, the conservation and display of these beautiful wildflowers that we really hope to conserve both in our gardens and beyond our garden gates. And it's really a remarkable um, early harbinger of what we have gone on to see happen in our horticultural world. I mean, to, to think that uh, the Copelands were seeing this urgency um, and acting on it. Uh, there were a handful of people around the country, you know, in the 70s and 80s and, and before, but it started to gain a little more momentum. Um, but they were few and far between trying to bring the idea of beauty and native landscape, native plant, native wildlife conservation together. And so that they're really remarkable sort of beacons in this world that we're in right now. Wouldn't you say, Sam? I, absolutely. I think they were very forward thinking. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, it's 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 very unique to have a garden that is relatively new to the world of public gardens, but to have this beautiful established landscape, mm -hmm. really thanks to their forethought and their planning, um, and really, I mean, this, a lot of these gardens started off as, again, fallow cornfields, but you can see there's mature trees here. Um, there's established plantings of all kinds of native plants, um, native from all over the East Coast. Um, it's a really spectacular place that has that age and history. Mm -hmm. um, it is just starting to be able to be shared with the broader public. Yeah, yeah. So give us a little bit you said um something about a strong sense of place can can you describe a little bit about the climate uh about the the scope and the look if i were to drive up to mount cuba what what am i going to see and and what is the scope of the garden and then we'll get more into the the research and some of that aspect of the mission Sure. So even the approach to Mount Cuba Center, not necessarily the property itself, it just kind of transports you to this, um, you know, these backcountry roads. It's very like tight, windy um, roadways to even get to Mount Cuba Center. So you're already kind of put into this different place. And you, I mean, you wouldn't kind of think about it as being a place that's you know close to places like Wilmington, Delaware, or Philadelphia, um, Pennsylvania. 
um, but you're on these back windy roads. There's these beautiful rolling hills, um, old established woodlands, beautiful open meadows. And you get to Mount Cuba Center's front gates, which are you know beautifully designed. Our entrance gardens are spectacular. And that's really where your experience at Mount Cuba Center starts, even in those entrance gardens, which to me are just as spectacular as every other maintained part of that landscape. Mm. And you basically head up this hill um, through this, um, essentially what was the driveway. And again, there's garden, you're greeted by gardens on both sides. One of my favorite places at Mount Cuba Center is our rock wall garden and our scree garden, which you can really only see from that driveway. But every part of this garden has, you know, treasures to be found, um, little pockets of very special things, you know, established plants that you don't see many other places. Um, and they're just displayed perfectly and selected perfectly for these little niches in the landscape. Mm. Um, and the parking lot uh, that we actually put in a new parking lot at the top of the hill, beautifully designed, um, very water conscious planting, um, you know, designed to handle storm water, um, sustainably planted with plants that would be low maintenance after, um, you know, once they're established. Um, go to our ticketing office and you would meander through this lovely walking path, um, which is a new garden area called the Woodland Glade, which would eventually um, you would eventually be greeted by the Copeland House, which used to be the Copeland's home and as well as the formal gardens. And not far from there is the trial garden, which is where I work, where we're evaluating these native plants for their beauty and value. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, we kind of head down the other side of the hill into our naturalistic gardens, um, which are very dynamic. You have the top of the hill, which is filled with beautiful spring ephemerals. It's a really wonderful time at any time of year, a wonderful place at any time of year to visit, but especially early spring is, it's a very special part of the garden. Um, you head down to the middle of that hillside and it's really, there's this beautiful meadow of warm season grasses and native um, meadow plants. And then you head to the bottom of the hill, which is where I tell everyone, if this is the first visit to Mount Cuba Center, you need to go here. This is where our pond garden was, or is, um, which was installed in the 1960s. Um, it's a spectacular garden um, that is designed around this water feature of this rolling stream into several different um, ponds that go down the hill. Um, and it's just a wonderful place. I mean, it's a beautiful place, but you can also see wildlife mm. um, interacting with the gardens. There's you know turtles um, sunbathing on the logs. There's frogs. There's fish. It's a great place for kids and families to enjoy. Um, and recently, we've opened up our natural land. So if you continue down the hill, you'll head up the other side of the hill cross a little footbridge and you're into our natural lands where there's new foot trails and you can really appreciate a broader sense of Mount Cuba. Um, really the core gardens are about 20 acres and beyond that we have over a thousand acres of natural lands. Wow. And now this area is you know, available for visitors to see, to interact with this landscape that is managed by our natural lands team. And there's some really wonderful things out there. It's one of my favorite places to go walking. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're speaking this week with Sam Hoadley, Manager of Horticultural Research at the Mount Cuba Center, focused on native plant celebration, conservation, and research in Delaware. We'll be right back with Sam for more on the native plant research of Mount Cuba. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the rich intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. 
Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. While I am very excited about the upcoming Garden Futures Summit in New York City, September 29th and 30th, and its first day of speakers bringing some of the most interesting and relevant issues in gardening today in focus for us all. I am also really excited about the second day of the summit, touring gardens of the city. In preparation for that, and my excitement, and perhaps to entice even more of you to make a trek to the city for the summit, I have two upcoming interviews about just this, Gardens of New York City. One in conversation with Richard Hayden, Director of Horticulture for the High Line, and another in conversation with Nok Min No, photographer extraordinaire, flower and garden lover whose new book, New York Green, profiles more than 40 public gardens and green spaces around the five boroughs. Some of you will know and love well many of these gardens, and some of these gardens you will never have heard of, I guarantee you. Listen for those conversations coming up and hope to see many of you at the Garden Conservancy's inaugural Garden Futures Summit. For more information and to register, head over to gardenconservancy.org forward slash education. Hey, it's Jennifer. Ah, It's hard to believe that August is upon us, and just like that, the light is a little different in the morning, isn't it? And in the evening, even while it's still hot and bright midday. We have weeks of summer to sweat and savor, but we're never really sitting still, are we? The planet carries us along. Our gardens carry us along, too. Enjoy. Sam Holdley is the Manager of Horticultural Research at the Mount Cuba Center in Delaware, celebrating, conserving, and researching native plants for their horticultural, including ecological, value. As we come back, Sam describes a little bit more about the unique characteristics of the Mount Cuba Center in northern Delaware and moves on to more about the history and work of the trial gardens. When you uh, describe this, because it's a lot of space, what Mm -hmm. kinds of ecosystems is it naturally representative of? Like, is it a, I mean, I think we would call this the mid-Atlantic? Yep. So we are in the mid-Atlantic region, Mm -hmm. um, along with several of our surrounding states. And if we're talking about ecoregions, we are a, we're part of the Piedmont ecoregion, which is basically the eastern foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. Mm -hmm. It extends all the way up to New York City, all the way down through Georgia and Alabama. And that's really our focus of conservation is plants that grow in that Piedmont ecoregion because they will, in theory, grow very well here, um, in addition to where they're locally native to. Um, And it's really interesting. The Piedmont ecoregion is this tiny sliver of northern Delaware. We, again, have these kind of rolling hills, 
um, rocky woodlands. But as soon as you kind of get south of Wilmington, um, the ground flattens out and it becomes coastal plains. So the, the plant communities become very different. It's a stark contrast to, you know, to where we are at Mount Cuba Center in northern Delaware, this kind of hilly area, which is, I believe Mount Cuba Center is actually the second highest place in Delaware, which is only 400 feet. But for um, Delaware, that's really, really high. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, again, it's this it's this very unique place in Delaware, um, and it's special because a lot of you know plants, as far as Delaware is concerned, only occur in this kind of northwestern part of the state where we kind of have this intersection between the Piedmont ecoregion and coastal plain. Yeah, and so you so these endemics are probably of great interest to to you and your your research work. Absolutely. And it's it, they're most likely more common in places like Pennsylvania or Maryland that may have a, a larger slice of this Piedmont ecoregion. Um, but for us, they are a very special, you know, kind of sampling of what the Piedmont ecoregion has to offer in our state. So then move us into the research program. Who started that? And and at the time, why was it started? And then let's talk about its current mission and focus areas. Sure. So um, the trial garden was actually conceived by Mrs. Copeland. Um, it used to be her cut flower garden um, where the gardeners would refresh um, arrangements in the main house um, on a, you know, on a, on a regular basis. Um, but after, you know, as she was um, you know, as she was kind of envisioning what Mount Cuba Center would become, she really wanted that place to be transformed into a trial garden. She basically said, you know, after I'm gone, there's not going to be a need to refresh those um, those arrangements in the house. This really should be a place where we're researching native plants and basically their adaptability or their ability to be grown in the mid-Atlantic region. And after she passed away in 2002, that exact thing started to happen. And we started to evaluate plants Um larger groups of plants together, um, even as early as 2003. Um, I believe 2003, 2005 was the first organized trial where we trialed um, many different genera of asters, many different asters together, and put out a research report, which basically highlighted the best plants from the evaluation. And this really set a strong precedent mm -hmm. of not just trialing these plants, but also then sharing that information with the public. Um, and um, so not long after that, we did a trial on Echinacea, which was actually the first time we trialed that genus. We did a second trial on that not long ago, but that was from 2007 to 2009. And after those first two trials, um, the trial garden was kind of re renovated. There was an inclusion of a small fence that went around the perimeter, a new shade bed, so we could not just trial shade-loving plants, but we could also compare the performance of plants that are grown in both shade and sun together in the trial garden. Um, and that work was completed, I believe, in 2013 or 2014. And not long after that, our research reports um, were taken over and started to be written by George Coombs, who really built this program into what it is today. Um, his first research report was on Heuchera, um, which I think was groundbreaking at the time that it came out, taking all of these cultivars, comparing them in common garden conditions, and really trying to help people understand what plants are best in the mid-Atlantic region, just giving people enough information to give to make good informed decisions when they're out shopping for native plants. Um, and since then we have continued to, to trial large groups of plants or large genera where there are a lot of cultivars or a lot of species present. And we are often looking at plants from two different perspectives. Um, one is, are there a lot of plants available? And you know, maybe there's something that we could, maybe there's questions that we could help answer through these trials. Maybe there's, you know, with echinacea or, um, with Heuchera, maybe there's 80 different cultivars. 
But, you know, how does a homeowner or a home gardener in the nursery industry make decisions on what plants are really going to work in this area? And we can help them to do that by sharing these results and trialing these plants over three to five years. Um, on the other hand, we look at plants that maybe aren't very popular or aren't very exposed to the world of horticulture and we think deserve champions. Um, and I think of that, I think of um, trials like the Carex trial that we recently concluded or our Soledago trial of Goldenrods. Um, we have this opportunity to put a spotlight on these plants that are maybe underappreciated or underrepresented in horticulture and really kind of give them a voice and show them, show people how beautiful and wonderful and valuable these plants really are. Um, so that's kind of been the evolution of the trials at Mount Cuba Center. And um, one of the biggest things that's been added, especially to some of the most recent trials, is this focus not just on the beauty of these plants and you know their ornamental qualities, but also their ecological value. And most, most often we're looking at pollinator interactions between the various species and cultivars in these trials. And we're trying to determine which plants have the greatest capacity to support and likely, or to attract and likely support pollinators in a home garden so that people can use these plants to support wildlife at home. Yeah. Um, so that's become a major focus of our trials. And I think you're going to see that continue to be a greater and greater focus on trials that we will be doing in the future. That's awesome. So in the beginning, you didn't really, in the first sets of trials, you weren't looking at those wildlife interactions and uh, and sort of grading them, but that has become a focus um, did that start with the Carex? Which trial or what year did that new lens and overlay get included into your trial criteria? So that happened with the Coreopsis trial for the first time. Okay. And we worked with a, a student from the University of Delaware, Owen Cass, who was actually looking at not necessarily the number of insects that were coming to these various um, Coreopsis cultivars and species, but the types of insects that were coming to them. So we were looking at the profiles of, you know, whether it was these various species and cultivars were attracting a lot of bees, flies, beetles, bugs, all of that thing, all of those, um, you know, larger mm -hmm. categories of insects to try to understand, you know, which plants were supporting what kinds of insects. Okay. So that kind of got our foot in the door about, you know, taking that deeper look into the ecological interactions of these garden plants with wildlife. Um, and then for the first time, we started to collect data on our own with the Minarda trial. Um, and this is, I, I should mention, this is primarily volunteer driven. Um, we have a great volunteer team of citizen scientists called the Pollinator Watch Team who are collecting this data with us. Um, and really what they're doing is while these various trials are in bloom, they're observing these plants for 60 seconds each on a near daily basis when they're in bloom. And at times we're looking at, you know, our any of the insects that are already on that plant or in fluorescence um, that were already there um, are counted. Any plants, any insects that are coming and landing on that inflorescence are also counted during that 60 second window. Mm -hmm. um, and we're taking those totals from the year and trying to understand which plants are again, attracting and supporting the most um, insects. So it's a, a lot of data yeah. um, and it's totally fascinating to see the trends kind of shake out at the end of the year, but it really um, allows us to promote not just beautiful plants, but plants that are supporting, that are going to be able to support insects um, in a home landscape. Yeah. And fortunately, a lot of the plants that kind of come out as some of the top performers from the trial do a little bit of both. Yeah. And compromise really isn't the right word, but it, these are really like ideal plants, in my opinion, that, you know, they're going to make a great garden plant, but they're also going to be doing something. Right. Um, they're, yeah. And so they're, you know, these are the plants we really get excited about. And there's a handful from each of the trials that we've completed 
um, that we really, really work hard to promote. That's great. And I, I think that, you know, it's not just you get excited about it. I think that gardeners get excited about it because they really want to be part of this change and uh, help to reintegrate our gardens with the larger world. We want to be doing the right best thing and still loving our garden and the way that it looks, right? Exactly. And, and I think there really is, a, you know, a hunger for this data. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right, people want to, they want to be supporting wildlife, um, you know, in addition to having, you know, the creative freedom and to create a beautiful place in their home landscape. Yeah. But for it to do more, I, I find that to be the most rewarding thing about gardening, you know, just in my home landscape. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think many of us as gardeners are also very tired of being sold something and then to later find out that, you know, oh, it, as this level of a cultivar, it's not actually very useful to the insects. And then you feel kind of cheated or or misled, and that feels terrible. And, you know, or to find out that all the native cultivars you just got somewhere, XYZ, um, were actually treated with neonicotinoids. And then you're like, oh, God, what, are, like, how do you get the right information and then source the right and best plants? And, um, you know, I think it makes our head spin. So to be able to go to the Mount Cuba Center and and find out or get the reports or read more about them, I think is very, very helpful. Now, my guess is, am I right when I think that Part of the focus of your work is to get this data. The next part is to help inform and educate home gardeners. But the third part is also to help drive information for the industry so that that gap between what we as gardeners might want, because we just read about it at Mount Cuba or the newest report, but we can't find it in our nursery. So to help close that gap, is, is it sort of threefold? Yes, and it is a completely linked system. Good. And we are we are really just, you know, we're trialing these plants and we're providing the information, but we don't sell the plants. So it's really important for us to be working with the nursery industry, um, informing them about, you know, even in progress trials, how things are going. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can give them time to react, time to, you know, stock up on plants or acquire plants that might be tracking really well in our evaluations. Mm-hmm. And that's something we're working on right now to try to be more proactive in that communication. So then when in theory, if we're creating demand once these trials are completed and people are seeing, okay, this is a great plant, but where can I get it? Hopefully um, those plants will be available either as the trial is concluding or not long afterwards. So that's, to me, that's our biggest challenge going forward, but it's something we're, we're really working on because um, our goal is to, you know, get these plants in the hands of the nursery industry, but also um, get them into the hands of gardeners who are really going to be making that change. These are the people that are going to be, you know, having, you know, conserving native plants in their home landscape and amplifying native habitats in their home gardens. Yeah. So I want to ask a couple of questions before I I ask you to dive into a couple of the reports. So my first question is, for gardeners listening, can they go onto the Mount Cuba website and find the results of every uh, trial you have completed to date? You absolutely can. Um, So if you go on the website, um, you can see everything we have ever done in the trial garden it's all available right there you can download any of the reports that you want in pdf form it's all for free Um, and in addition to those pdfs of the research reports 
Um, we have detailed write-ups on every single plant that's ever gone through the trial garden. And these include plants that, you know, maybe didn't do so well, um, but there in some cases maybe reasons for that. So our trial garden, the conditions in the trial garden, at least in the mid-Atlantic mid region, are maybe best described as average. We have a pH of about 6.5 in the soils. They're foil, fairly moisture retentive, fairly high nutrient content, kind of a clay loam. Um, so if you have similar soils to us, you're going to have very similar results with the plants that we are promoting as being the top performing plants. But if there are species that might prefer, prefer soils that maybe have a little more moisture or they want soils that are a little more dry, um, some of those plants may not perform particularly well in the trial garden, but they may perform well in gardens that have those specific soil conditions. So if there's a plant that maybe didn't do so well in the trial, we try to explain maybe why that could mm -hmm. be, and then maybe where that plant could be cited, where someone could be successful in its cultivation. So all that information is on the website. And we have in our couple of our most recent trials, we also have downloadable spreadsheets. Um, really, I think is most relevant with the Carex trial. You can download the spreadsheet and basically sort for your garden conditions, your ornamental qualities that you might be looking for um, in a Carex or a Sedge, and basically sort and make lists for yourself. Um, it helps. It's a good list builder. It's a good plant, a good resource for planning on um, which plants might work well um, based on your various garden goals. Yeah. Now, uh, the next question is aimed to help direct those people that are out there listening, saying, "Yeah, but I don't live in the Mid Atlantic region. I live in California or Nevada or or you know Northern Ohio or wherever they might live." One of the things that's fascinating to me is that, yes, you live in a very different climate than I do in interior Northern California, but in the handful of trials that you have already cited to me, the Monarda, the Asters, the Echinacea, the Hookera, the Carex, the Solidago, the Coreopsis, you have cited at least four, five genera that are native here too. So it might not be that your exact species that you trialed and, and got information on will correspond directly to mine, but it will give me interesting information about general trends, as you were saying, so that I could say, well, they were seeing X, Y, and Z in their asters or their hookara or their carex. These are my native varieties in California or Nevada or Colorado or Texas. So I think this is useful information to anybody that wants to take a look at it and find out, uh, you know, get a little more direction on the native varieties of, of any of these genera in their own region. Do you think that's fair? I do. I think that, I mean, you can take some of those very basic trends and kind of extrapolate what they're saying that to apply it to a broader region. Mm -hmm. And even if you're talking about like neighboring regions like the southeastern United States or the Midwest or the northeastern United States, um, a lot of our top performing plants may also be top performers there. And it would be fascinating to see, you know, the same trials happening in all these different regions and to see if any of these plants, you know, are continuing to show up as top performers. But something that's been really interesting um, is uh, we often compare ourselves um, and we are often compared to the Chicago Botanic Gardens. Mm. Our, um, our trial program, at least the way we look at plants from an ornamental perspective, is modeled directly off of how Chicago Botanic Gardens trials um, are conducted and the work that Richard Hockey is doing there. And often when we trial similar genera of plants, and I mean, this is most often not coordinated, um, we're finding very similar plants are performing really, really well in both of these situations in Chicago versus nearly Wilmington, Delaware. 
Um, so I think often a good plant is a good plant, of course, with exceptions of, you know, that plant may not be good in Northern California or Colorado or Texas, um, but you can take some of those trends and kind of extrapolate what maybe is there um, and take some of those lessons learned, even from pollinator trends. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the, some of the things we continue to see over and over in the plants that, um, insects are preferring, you can take some of those lessons and maybe apply them to what's locally available as far as native plants in your region. So the idea of the overlap or the uh, similarities between your program in Chicago, but you say it's not necessarily coordinated. Is there any coordination of the kinds of trials you are doing and say some of our other big research centers in different arenas? I'm thinking of Garden in the Woods in the Northeast. I'm thinking of Chicago or Missouri Botanic Gardens. I'm thinking of California Botanic Garden or the California Native Plant Society, the Wildflower Center down in Texas. I mean, we have a lot of these kinds of hubs with smart and interested humans, just like you. Uh, is there a coordination of people trying to bring this kind of information together? Um, there's not currently that I know of, and but there are you know several different institutions that are doing work, including um, universities um, and other botanic gardens. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, it, and it's something that that could and probably should be done. Um, there, there needs to be more study on this. Um, you know, when we're, especially when we're talking about pollinator preference and the value of these various species and cultivars to local wildlife, um, this is something that is incredibly understudied and could be a really, it could be majorly beneficial to have more work being done on this, more people looking at this question um, and more research being done to try to answer some of these fundamental questions that gardeners and um, ecologists are having all over the country. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Native plants are almost always a bonus in our gardens, but depending on where we are and our exact conditions, some are better than others, which is where Mount Cuba Center in Delaware is invaluable. We're speaking this week with Sam Holdley, Manager of Horticultural Research at the Mount Cuba Center, focused on native plant celebration, conservation, and horticultural, including ecological, research around native plants. We'll be right back with Sam for more specifics on this long-standing native plant resource available to us all. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. You know, one of the things I love about August, or this exact moment in the seasonal nature of things, is how many of our plants we can see in foliage, in flower, and in seed or fruit, all at the same time. We can see the whole cycle all at once, from our helleniums to our hot peppers, the whole life cycle is on view and reminds us daily we are part of something so much bigger, so ever flowing and flowering and reseeding. I find it centering and comforting somehow. It asks me to step up to being a part of this, but it also reminds me that I'm never alone. Hoping it does the same for all of you too.
Sam Holdley is the manager of horticultural research at the Mount Cuba Center in northern Delaware. They celebrate, conserve, and research native plants for horticultural as well as their ecological value. As we come back, Sam walks us through some of the specific native plant trials, including the most recent Carex trials. When you say this is a great plant, like what does that, I think you've already made it clear what that means ecologically, but what does that mean in terms of how it behaves and and lives in a garden situation? What makes you say that is a good plant? Let's start with, um, I don't know, uh, the aster. I think, you know, so many asters are native across the the U.S. Um, Hookera as well, Carrick, Solidago, I think any of those three and and some of your findings from those. Let's start wherever you want to start. Sure. So so most recently we concluded our Carex trial, mm-hmm. which was actually done over over four years. And we had an additional year when we did a just a, a purely a mowing study on all of the various mm. species and cultivars of Carex. As a like just lawn to see which alternative. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um as a lawn alternative to see which these plants may be both tolerant and also of that treatment and also have a similar aesthetic match to you know traditional turf grass lawns. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Carex specifically, what we were looking for in a plant was a plant that with extremely low maintenance, and maybe I should have mentioned this before, but um, in the trial gardens, we are we practice very, very little little maintenance and care for these plants after the first season um, that they're planted. So the first year, we may be giving them some supplemental water during dry times of the season. And after that first year, um, the plants are on their own. And generally, trials last from three to five years. Three is um, kind of the current model for herbaceous perennials. Five years is the current model for woody plants, um, although the Carex trial was slightly extended there. Um, but these plant, these are plants that are doing well um, under very, very um, low maintenance conditions, very low input. Um, so that's plants are performing well um, in those kind of conditions are already at the top of our list. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's plants that just have all the ornamental qualities that gardens are looking for. You know, attractive foliage, full plants. Um, you know, sturdy stems um, for the Carex, just mostly what we were looking for are just full, um, beautiful clumps of foliage um, that are attractive for an extended season with very limited input from us. Um, and there were a lot of plants in the Carex trial that really fit that bill. Um, and what was interesting with that trial specifically is that we grew all 70 different Carex in both full sun and shade. And traditionally, what you think of, or at least what I think of when I think of Carex, or maybe before, maybe what I thought of before this trial started was kind of, you know, maybe some good soil moisture and really kind of shady gardens. That's kind of where I kind of picture Carex or pictured Carex um, maybe before this trial started. But in pushing a lot of these plants into full sun, we really saw how tolerant a lot of these plants were in both shade and full sun, and their durability and flexibility and utility in a tremendous array of garden conditions, um, which really, like, that's another thing we're looking for, adaptability, ability to to thrive in, again, not a diversity of soils, but a diversity of um, sun versus shade, mm-hmm. um, specifically when we're talking about the Carex. Um, so that's, you know, those are the kind of plants that are looking good, even though they're 
you know, being kind of put through their paces um, from a garden standpoint. Okay, wait, I want to come in here. So for those people that might not be familiar with the Carex, they might be more familiar with the word sedge, maybe. Sure. Uh, but these are those, you know, clump forming grass-like natives that we'll see. I mean, we see them actually in a lot of different places. But as you said, I think many people think of them as sort of along riparia or wetland areas. Mm-hmm. And um, they are, a, you know, they have kind of an inconspicuous flower. I mean, it's not, people don't grow it for the flower, but they can be interesting. Like they can be like black or, you know, against green, which is kind of a striking um, assemblage. And we have quite a few natives in California. And I think we did in Colorado as well. But when you say all 70, are these 70 different native plant species? Are these 70 that include some species and some cultivars from those species? Tell us about how you chose the ones you studied. Sure. So um, so there were 70 different carrot species and cultivars. 65 of them were um, straight species and five of those mm. were cultivars of straight species. Okay. Are, are really what I should say selections of um, our native species. Okay. So very species heavy. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those trials where you know, we're promoting the plants at the end of this trial that performed well in average garden conditions, which is what we have in the trial garden, which many people in this area have. Um, but there's plenty of carex that would prefer, you know, more moisture or less moisture. And there's no bad species. It's just about right plant, right place. And we're just really talking about one place out of many that you could grow different carex in. Um, and carex are an incredibly diverse genus. There are many, many, many of them out there. Um, and 70 is, you know, kind of a drop in the bucket about of as far as what's out there, right. um, even just in North America. We think about Delaware being a, a very small state. We have 137 <laughs> native species of carex that occur here. Right. Um, so what we did is we took basically a cross-section of Carex that were available in the nursery industry. And we also worked with our state botanist, Bill McAvoy, um, who provided us with some locally native species of Carex that maybe aren't in cultivation, but maybe deserve to be. And we grew them all together in the trial garden, again, over those five seasons, and basically saw how they performed. Um, Again, when they're put in common average garden conditions. So of those, what did you glean from your trial in terms of what makes an attractive plant and which ones were most ecologically functional. And so therefore, which ones you'd love to see people use more. Although I, part of what I'm hearing is that the overall theme is people should be using more of our native species of Carex in their gardens everywhere. Absolutely. Um, so, so one of the things that we really like I think one of my biggest takeaways from this trial is that Carex are an incredibly diverse group. So there really is a Carex for every garden out there. You know, they occur from those kinds of areas I talked about before, kind of those wet, shady areas, riparian areas, all the way through to, you know, mountaintops and coastal sand dunes, plants that want wet and shady and plants that want dry and sunny and everything in between. Um, So Carex to me, just this genus is so large and so diverse um, and seeing how incredibly adaptable many of these plants are to, car- to common garden conditions, even plants that performed really well in both full sun and shade, I think give designers and gardeners a unique opportunity to utilize these plants in unique ways and to even use um, some of these carex species that did well in shade and sun as kind of common garden elements to tie shady beds together with maybe sunny locations. Mm-hmm. There's not many plants out there that can kind of no. do it all. Yeah. And to me, Carex really kind of check a lot of boxes as far as, you know, 
accents to garden designs, ground covers, um, natural weed suppressants. Um, can we talk about green mulch? And in doing all of that, they're also providing habitat in a home landscape or in a garden design. Um, it's really kind of difficult to measure their ecological value because most carex are wind pollinated. So we weren't able to look at those pollinator interactions the way we would with, say, our hydrangea trial or echinacea trial. But that doesn't mean that these aren't performing um, important ecological functions, even in cultivation. In the trial garden specifically, we saw um, the carex being used by a variety of different insects, mollusks, amphibians as cover, particularly when they were grown in shade. Um, and you would see a very similar thing happen in a home garden. Um, we also saw caterpillars feeding on the foliage of various carex species. Um, one yeah. really interesting case we saw... Um, yellow-collared scape moth caterpillar feeding on Carex hirtifolia in the shade. And this is a fairly interesting um, specialized moth that is has a fairly wide native range, but it has fairly specific needs as far as its host plants and the plants that the adults will nectar on. So a lot of Carex are good host plants for this specific species of moss. We saw the caterpillars in our Carex trial, and later we saw the adults of this moth nectaring in our Solidago trial that was just... Um, just next to our Carex trial. So even within our small trial garden, we were able to support all of the different life stages of this rather specialized insect. So it really does kind of show me that, you know, if you plant it, they will come. If you provide habitat, even in a small place, um, even in a small home garden where you don't have a lot of room, you can still provide value for insects that maybe you weren't trying to support initially, but you are still, you know, you're having that value, you're having that impact um, even in a home garden, which is really what it's all about, inspiring people to plant these native plants and kind of create these oases in their home landscapes. Yeah. And in addition to that, you know, they're, the seeds of Carex are eaten by birds, mammals, some insects. They have a lot of value. Again, difficult to categorize and measure, but they're doing things. They're not just static, you know, statues in the landscape. Right. Now, does their root profile mimic that of true grasses, Sam? And so are they also perhaps helping with soil stability, water percolation, and um, and aeration with their with their distinctive root systems? Am I right when I think that? Absolutely. Some of them, especially um, the more wet-loving species, mm -hmm. have extensive and very deep root systems. Um, we talked. There's a couple of um, species that really grow in very wet conditions. Um, actually, a fair amount of sun in the wild, including Carex stricta and Carex haydenii. Their roots go down extremely, extremely deep. Um, and there's other woodland species that are more shallowly rooted, but I think if you use these plants correctly, you site them well, um, they have a really huge potential to be, you know, retaining soil, reducing erosion, um, and covering ground in a very sustainable way, all while providing habitat for local wildlife. Yeah, you just can't get better than that. And some of the, did you find any difference in supporting wildlife from those cultivars? Like I, I, there's a lot of breeding for the bronze ones and the kind of interesting sure. colored ones. Did you find because I know you have found that some overbreeding in some of these groups, we'll move to that next, uh, has diminished the ecological function of some of our plants. But how, did you find that with the Carex or no? We couldn't make any real direct comparisons with the Carex, okay. although I'm sure there is some consequence to um, plants that were maybe selected for ornamental qualities, such as, um, you know, maybe selecting a variegated car Carex over um, a pure green leaf 
example of the same species. There may be consequences there for herbivory. Um, we're really not sure. Um, but what we've seen again and again in the trials is the farther you depart from the typical species, the kind of wild type plants, especially if you're changing something or selecting something in some fundamental way, particularly in the flower structures, um, then you're going to be very likely impacting the value of that plant to wildlife, um, whether it's the ability of that plant to produce pollen and or nectar or the accessibility of that pollen or ne and nectar mm -hmm. to pollinators. Um, there are impacts that um, that are likely going to be happening. And you found this, I think, very specifically in your most recent echinacea trial. Will you talk a little yes. bit about that? I remember Margaret Roach wrote about it quite beautifully, um, but maybe other people haven't haven't heard about this. Um, and it was really stunning and great information for us as gardeners. Absolutely. So echinacea, as you know, are extremely popular garden plants. And the trial that we most we wrote about was our most recent evaluation on echinacea, which took place from 2018 to 2020. And you remember we talked about our first trial, which was from 2007 to 2009. Mm -hmm. Since 2009, there's been many cultivars introduced into the trade. There's kind of been this explosion of availability and breeding in echinacea um, and tons of cultivars have come out. Um, and so we really wanted to take some of those new cultivars that have been introduced since that first trial and compare them against some of the top performers from that original evaluation of the genus um, Echinacea. And so we accumulated all these plants together. And this was kind of the, you know, a flip from what we saw with the Carex. This was a very cultivar heavy trial. I think we had five or six species of Echinacea and um, about 70 different cultivars in that evaluation. And again, this is one of those trials where there's so much availability. We felt that we had this unique opportunity to help people kind of untangle the complications um, when they're selecting plants and kind of help them understand, you know, not just good garden plants, but also plants that might be able to support insects. And when we look at echinacea flowers, obviously there's been a lot of breeding done with some of these plants, a lot of selection that selecting that's been done um, with an emphasis on, you know, novel flower colors, mm -hmm. novel flower forms. Um, you know, we talk right. about a lot of the doubles, really dense. Yeah, you know, kind of those pom-pom types, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and we really were interested in that pom-pom type specifically when we're comparing it to a more wild type flower form where you have all those interior disc flowers that are providing the pollen, providing the nectar for pollinators. Um, and you just kind of have that perimeter of those ray flowers, um, which are really kind of like the advertisers for that flower. When you have a double flower, um, there's several different ways that can occur, but the mutations that allow that to occur are basically replacing um, likely a part of the reproductive structures of that flower with something that's closer to that ray floret um, tissue and structure. So in most cases, you're going to be replacing some kind of the, some part of the value to pollinators at, or at the very least making it less accessible to pollinators. So we wanted to see if what we saw in the trial garden as far as pollinator visits to these various species and cultivars of echinacea would reflect what we expected to see. And during this evaluation, um, we saw exactly that, um, that pollinators were dramatically preferring those more single or wild type echinacea flowers over those pom-pom types. And again, that can just help you make informed decisions. If you are trying to support pollinators, pollinators in your garden, and if you have that option at a garden center between that single flowered echinacea, whatever cultivar it may be, compared to that pom-pom type echinacea, the choice is very simple. Um, you're going to wanna to choose that more wild type plant. Um, and then you can go even farther. When we started to look at the most preferred plant or those kind of top tier pollinator preferred plants, we saw that they all kind of had one thing in common. 
and that was Echinacea purpurea. Um, so Echinacea purpurea is um, somewhat locally native to Delaware, um, really kind of the most eastern populations occur, um, I believe, in o eastern Ohio. Um, but this plant proved to be extremely valuable or extremely able to attract pollinators. And most of the selections of that plant, so these are plants that are very similar to that straight species, maybe you're just kind of forms of that species that are in cultivation, um, such as plants like Ruby Star or Fragrant Angel, where there's been relatively little manipulation as far as like human manipulation is concerned on these plants, they often retained a lot of that value in their or in or their ability to attract pollinators. And again, once you started to manipulate those plants, or you started to see more complex breeding, we started to see less and less pollinators coming to those plants. But the closer you stay to the straight species or the selections of that straight species, the, the higher likelihood that you're going to be able to attract and support pollinators in your home garden. And that's something we saw again and again in um, even the wild hydrangea trial, um, the Minarda trial, um, the Phlox trial. A lot of these selections hold a lot of that value, uh, similar to the straight species, but when there's a lot of manipulation, a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of human influence in particular, that's when we start to see the value and the ability of these plants to attract pollinators go down. Right. And, you know, what's interesting is, again, what you what you are saying, which is it, this this data gives us the tools we need to make decisions. So say for some reason you actually love that pom-pom flower. Sure. Get a couple, put them in a pot on your on your back patio, and then get 25 of the species and plant them in clumps out in your garden bed so that you have the pom-pom to cut and take inside, but you are feeding your, your wildlife and, and making a beautiful show in your garden with the species as a bigger push. Exactly. And the other thing to, to highlight here too, is that um, the value of these cultivars and species kind of exist to me on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, there are very few plants that I would say offer no value to pollinators or no value to wildlife. Um, there are exceptions, of course, um, but these plants exist on a spectrum. Um, if you talk about like the, um, the hydrangea in particular offered some kind of interesting compromises to style over substance. Mm. So we talk about those kind of mop head flower forms that, you know, we we think are very attractive. There's these big billowy inflorescences um, filled with sterile flowers, relatively few fertile flowers, kind of a very similar um, trend that we saw with the pom-pom type echinacea. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the other hand, you have your lace cap flower types, which have tons of accessible fertile flowers, you know, hundreds of them, and they're attracting tons and tons of pollinators. There is kind of a middle there. There are plants that produce a lot of those fertile flowers and also a lot of those sterile flowers. So if you really like that look, there's often a plant that will, will be able to support some insects as well. If Especially if you have limited space, you may not be able to plant, you know, two or three different kinds of, um, of hydrangeas. There are compromises. And, you know, we think, um, we believe at Mount Cuba Center in conservation by addition, planting a native plant is a positive. That's a win. Um, that's, you know, you're doing good things. And, you know, there's there's plants that you can select that will maximize the ecological value of your home garden, even if it's a small space. Um, but a native plant is a native plant. Um, and we really think that encouraging people to to garden with natives is a great way to get their their feet in the door to get people who maybe don't know about native plants excited about native plants so that they maybe will eventually go and look at that information and say okay well this plant you know maybe isn't what i'm looking for aesthetically but it's supporting more pollinators maybe i'll choose that and then 
they're rewarded by, you know, seeing the insects, you know, utilizing their property, utilizing the plants that they've chosen. Um, and again, that's to me the most rewarding part about gardening. Sam, is there anything else you would like listeners to know about the gardens and trial center there at Mount Cuba? Um, I think just just telling people that, you know, that we're here, we'd love to see you. Um, uh, you can actually come to Mount Cuba Center and see the trial gardens interact with these plants in real time. Nice. You don't have to wait for the, you know, the reports to come out to make your decisions. Yeah. Um, often, you know, you can look at these plants, you can see those pollinator trends in real life. You can see the plants that these insects are flocking to. You can see the plants that, you know, side by side, just from an ornamental pr- perspective, you know, that's a beautiful plant. I want to add that to my garden. Right. Um, so that's a really, really great opportunity to just see this research in progress. Um, we open April 1st and we're open through about Thanksgiving every year. Do you need a ticket? Is it free? Is it membership? How does that work? There are memberships available and you would purchase a ticket um, at the ticketing office before oh, okay. you would come into the gardens when you come to visit. Okay. And there's many, the other thing I really wanted to mention is there's many opportunities for learning and interacting with Mount Cuba Center throughout the entire year, even beyond, you know, the the time when our garden gates are open to regular visitation. We have many programs which are all available on our website um, for virtual learning. Um, there is events that happen at Mount Cuba Center throughout the season. Um, so definitely worth checking out. And if you're in the area, do do stop by Mount Cuba Center. It really is um, what I think to be kind of a jewel in this area as far as public gardens are concerned. Definitely, definitely. Uh, one final question. Sure. Are you an organic garden? Where do you fall on the chemical uh, inputs uh, arc? So very limited chemical inputs. There are certain situations where chemicals may be necessary, but we kind of think of them as part of um, a sustainable landscape management practice. Um, It's, again, not the first tool in our belt we're going to reach for, but there are certain situations where some chemicals may be necessary, especially in the treatment of invasive plants or invasive insects, things like that. Um, As far as the trial garden goes, we are about as organic as it comes um, and uh, very, like, pretty much all hand-maintained as far as um, weeds and things like that, and no pesticides um, at all, no... um, fungicides. We really want to see how these plants are going to perform again with very, very limited maintenance. Thank you so much for being a guest on the program today. There's like a thousand more questions I could ask you and we are going to stay in touch so that we uh, bring listeners up to date on your trials as they come out. But I just appreciate the work. I appreciate the heart behind it and your time today. Absolutely. And thank you so much again for having me, Jennifer. Sam Holdley is the manager of horticultural research at the Mount Cuba Center in northern Delaware, a remarkable botanic garden and conservation center, as well as one of the country's leading research and trial gardens for native plant species, open to the public since 2013. Join us again next week when we dial in on firescaping, planning, planting, and caring for our gardens with both habitat and fire safety in mind, in conversation with Adrian Edwards and Rachel Schleiger. In the midst of peak fire season throughout the West, and everywhere really, this is a conversation and a new book resource you won't want to miss. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. 
Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you for your support. That's how this podcast grows. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and by the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription, and communication support by Sheila Stern. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.